0: To the Explorest. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. I hope you're all safe and keeping sane wherever you happen to be. As always, I'm working hard to get new episodes into your ears, but my day job as an editor has been pretty crazy lately. That said, I still want to keep you entertained during this pandemic, so while I work on the next batch of Rome episodes, I wanted to pull 2019's Halloween bonus episode out of the Patreon vault. Don't worry, patrons, I've added some brand new material about poison in ancient Rome to keep it fresh. For more episodes like this one, consider becoming a patron. For as little as a dollar a month, my patrons help me spend less time on my day job and more time producing new episodes and exclusive bonus material. With your support, I get to do more of what I love, and you get more tales of women in history. Win-win! So, let's talk about women and poison. But first, a shout-out to some of my patrons. My Pirate Queens Emily H., Jessica B., Kayla, Wendy, Jackie S., Mikkel, Chloe, Sarah S., Becky, Morgan, Stephanie, Cara, Lauren O., Marie Claire, Samantha, Mira, Lydia, Sean, and Aaron. And my lady presidents, Caitlin, Louisa, Amy, Brendan, Paul, Elizabeth G., Nancy, Eve, Kat, Courtney H., Casey, Debbie, Pamela, Sasha, Cassie, Townsend, Ellie, Jessica S., Meg, Amanda, Audrey, Lauren K., Karen R., Amanda, Dana, Lori, Larissa, Belinda, Nicole, Claire, Elizabeth M, Kelly F, Mary, Diana, Kelly, Jeanette, Courtney, Kim, Elspeth, Melissa, Alexis, Iris, Krista, Veronica, Crystal, Catherine, Amanda, Emily C, the other Sarah S, Kiru and Maggie, and to the Imperators and Augustas who give me more than I ask for. Jackie C, Lizzie, Karen C, Alexis, and Avery. They say that poison is a woman's weapon of choice, but these days it isn't a very popular weapon. A Washington Post article used the FBI's supplemental homicide report to show that way more men commit murder than women, and poison is only the sixth most common way for a woman to kill. But still, there is this pervasive connection between women and poison. That silent killer that doesn't require brute strength, but a devious and, some say, womanly cunning. When mysterious deaths in history happen, it's often blamed on women and their lethal concoctions. Rat poison in the pie, arsenic in the wine. And sometimes, that's what really happened. But plenty of women from history have been poisoned, too. They flirted with death every day, even if they didn't know it, dousing themselves in dangerous cosmetics and hair products, wrapping themselves in poisonous clothing, caving in to the pressure to look young and beautiful, only to have it be the death of them. Grab a mortar and pestle, a narwhal horn, and some bright green silk. Let's go traveling. of course, in ancient Rome. It's 54 CE. A woman is sitting in a cell, watching the flame from the wall sconces glow. She is a prisoner awaiting judgment, but around Rome's fanciest tables, she's rather notorious, a sorceress, a poisoner, an artist, some say, and her medium is death. Many have acquired her services and paid top dollar, turning to her, as Tacitus has it, to serve the purposes of dark ambition. Up in the Imperial Palace, an empress is pacing, trying to figure out how she's going to kill her husband. She's determined that her son will be emperor, and her husband is starting to threaten her designs. Agrippina the Younger knows she can't poison him in an obvious way. She doesn't want him to know what's happening until it's far too late to stop it. Subtlety is needed here, and so she goes to that woman in the cell, whose name is Locusta, and makes a proposition that surely she can't refuse. Make me a poison to suit my needs, she demands, and I will help you. And thus this lady poisoner helps an empress change history, or so the story goes. Rome is rather famous for its poison. It's rumored that many of its most famous emperors die by lethal food. By the imperial period, it seems like no one's free from the threat of a plate of poisoned mushrooms. It becomes such a worry that the emperor has official tasters called pregustatores, either slaves or freedmen. Taste everything to ensure it's safe. Though men and women alike procure it and suffer from it, poison seems particularly tied to the ladies. We have so many weaknesses to make up for, the ancient writers say. So how do we do that? Well, we learn how to be devious. It doesn't help that women are often healers, particularly in villages and small towns outside the city where doctors aren't as prevalent. Any countrywoman worth her salt knows at least some things about the herbs around her, which bring down fevers and which help with sprains. And they're likely to know which ones will kill you. Aconite, sometimes called women's bane, can apparently kill mice with its scent alone at a distance. But used properly in mulled wine, it can also neutralize a scorpion sting. Henbane causes insanity. Hemlock is said to refrigerate the blood. All of these things can be found in fields and along roadsides. And so it is when things in Rome start to seem suspicious that women often fall into the frame. When some kind of plague breaks out in 331 BCE, a slave girl gets her pointer finger out and says it's a group of Roman matrons who are poisoning everyone. Some 20 women are investigated over it, several of them high-born. Two plead that their concoctions are just herbs, medicines from their gardens. The court makes them drink their own remedies, and they promptly keel over from, as Livy tells us, their own wicked practices though even Livy is skeptical that any of this actually happened. All in all, it's said 170 women are found guilty. Years later, another pestilence has important men dropping dead all over Italy. So the Senate starts up an investigation, which leads them to a woman named Hostilia, the wife of a consul suspected of masterminding this scheme to get her son into a prime political position. On nothing but circumstantial evidence, she and 3,000 others are put to death over such charges. Witch hunts, you say? I concur. The word venificium means both poisoning and practicing sorcery. Venificus or venefica is what we call a poisoner or a maker of drugs. Poison medicine and magic go hand in hand in Rome. And you know which of the sexes is most likely to be accused of practicing sorcery, don't you? Poison also seems to attach itself to women who veer out of their lane, sleeping with people who aren't their husbands and rebelling against their place in society. Quintilius tells us that one Marcus Cato apparently said that, Every adulteress is as good as a poisoner. Many women in Rome are accused of poisoning when they probably didn't. Several are empresses who will meet in future episodes, including Agrippina the Younger. Oh, we'll get to her. But some women are most certainly slaying with poison, and they're so good at it that they turn it into a profession. We know of several who gain fame in Rome for their lethal concoctions, including Canidia, Martina, and Locusta. After she helped murder Agrippina's husband, Locusta finds herself back in jail. But in a sudden twist of fate, she is summoned by Agrippina's son, Nero, now a truly terrible young emperor, who wants her to help him kill his stepbrother, Britannicus. It's said that when the poison acts too slowly, he beats Locusta almost senseless, then forces her to mix a more lethal poison right in front of him. It works, sadly, in the middle of a dinner party, and Locusta is awarded with a full pardon, some country estates, and the official title of Imperial Poisoner. That'll make a fun addition to the resume. She even gets a whole school full of her own poison students. Much later, after Nero's fall from power, she's led through the streets in chains and put to death. Oh, well, it was fun while it lasted. <music> Now we fast-forward to another poison hotbed, the Renaissance. The de' Medici family in Italy was famous for their poisons, arsenic, antimony, mercury, lead. But plenty of other people got into the poisoning game, including women. In the 1600s, a woman named Giulia Tofana got away with selling her poisons for 50 years before getting caught, almost always to women looking to make themselves into widows. Her aqua tafana was made with arsenic, lead, and belladonna, colorless, tasteless, and easily mixed in with wine. She often tricked authorities by bottling it up as holy water or in cosmetic containers. She killed some estimated 600 people, soulless murderess or a woman helping other women get rid of abusive husbands. I'd like to say the latter, but we just don't know. But women had just as much cause to worry about being poisoned as administering it themselves. Let's go up to the highest circles, where a fear of being poisoned runs rampant, in the palaces of emperors, czars, and monarchs. It makes sense that they worry, because outside of disease and clueless doctors, it is the stealthiest of killers. You might be poisoned at a banquet and never know what piece of food or a sip of wine did you win. The kings and queens of old will spend a lot of time obsessing over it. Take Henry VIII. He employs many people to test his food for him. They drink his wine and water, taste his feasts, test his salt, fondle his napkin, and even kiss his tablecloth and chair to make sure there's nothing nefarious on them. Kissin' that royal seat, y'all. Not even church is a safe space. In 1604, King Henry IV of France goes to church to take communion, where his dog goes nuts and tries to yank him back. Suspicious, he has his priest taste his communion wafer. When the priest had taken it, someone wrote of the incident, he swelled up and his body burst in twain. Gross. And so royals keep all sorts of bizarre cure-alls around. Unicorn horn, which is actually the horn of a narwhal, is believed to detect poison. Gemstones crushed and mixed up to a fine powder are drunk as a surefire remedy, as are bezoars or gallstones. Yummy. If you're really in a pinch, you could drink an antidote made out of many boiled scorpions. Whatever you say, medieval doctor. When it comes to poison paranoia, Henry's daughter Elizabeth I has it too. She reveres her seven-foot-long spiral unicorn horn, which is worth more than 10,000 pounds, roughly equivalent to an impressive castle, and drinks from a unicorn horn cup that is supposed to explode if poison ever touches it, hopefully before the queen picks it up. She also has a ring made out of a basor, which she waves over her wine and waits to see if it boils, a sure sign of something bad. In 1560, her secretary of state, William Cecil, gets so concerned about a Catholic plot that he not only has her food tested, but also her clothes. No one is allowed to give her any gifts, the royal underwear, and all manner of things that shall touch any part of Her Majesty's body bare, has to be both guarded and tested. Elizabeth has reason to be nervous. In 1587, a French ambassador plots to have one of her gowns poisoned. In 1597, another guy smears a poisonous substance on her horse's saddle, but she's wearing so many layers that it doesn't do the trick. But no matter how many unicorn horns she fondles, she is slowly being poisoned every day. Not by other people's potions, but by her own cosmetics. She worries a lot about making sure her skin looks flawless. This isn't just about vanity. Clear skin is a sign of purity, while blemishes are a sign of sin. So after she is left with smallpox scars on her face, she decides to bring a makeup fashion over from Italy. She plasters a ceruse foundation all over her skin, made of white lead, vinegar, sometimes arsenic, hydroxide, and carbonate. It gives the skin a pale and ghostly glow, turning it almost silvery by the way of refracted light. Wearing such a mixture every day means that, inevitably, the lead leeches into her system, which can cause hair loss, mood swings, even paralysis. It also corrupts the skin, making it look even more pitted, which means Queen E will feel compelled to slather more and more of it on over time. Later, in the 18th century, such mercury-based face paint kills 28-year-old socialite Maria, Countess of Coventry. Apparently, her husband hates her thick white foundation so much that he chases her around the table at one dinner party, shaking his napkin and trying to wipe the stuff off. This famed beauty suffers horrible headaches, red cheeks, swollen eyes, loose teeth, tremors, all in the name of beauty. Queen E and her ladies take it even further. They comb their lashes and brows with a lead comb soaked in vinegar, which would ensure the lead is allowed to leach out. They put belladonna drops in their eyes to make them sparkle. They try to whiten their teeth with crushed grains of pumice stone, honey, pearls, and more cooked in silver or gold. There are chemical peels, too, all full of mercury. The queen also uses vermilion to add a bit of color to her cheeks. It contains powdered cinnabar, used way back in Roman times, and it also has a lot of mercury. And in terms of fashion, where she leads, her ladies follow. Since her red hair is all the rage in England, women powder their wigs red with a mix of sulfur and safflower petals. It gives them nausea, headaches, and nosebleeds, but hey, they look pretty great. In her final years, the queen is said to be moody, taken to bouts of rage and depression. It could just be older age and the stresses of running an empire with everyone forever trying to marry you off. Or it could be the effects of decades of poisoning. She wouldn't be the first royal woman to meet such a fate. In the first half of the 1500s, a woman named Diane de Poitiers was French King Henry II's most beloved mistress. Though she was much older than he was, she had mad game. He doted on her, much to the annoyance of his wife, Catherine de' Medici. To stay in the king's favor, this renowned beauty went to great lengths to keep herself looking young and fine. That included drinking concoctions filled with gold, A contemporary of hers, one Maester Alexis, advised women to dissolve and reduct gold into a potable liquor. For those wanting to try it at home, you take 24-karat gold foil and distill it with lemon juice, wine, and more, then put it in a clay pot and cook it. This doing so, says the maester, ye shall have a right natural and perfect potable gold, taken every month once or twice. Very excellent to preserve youth and health. And while it will give you a nice, healthy glow, it's also probably going to destroy your kidneys. Though the good maester says to use it sparingly, we think Diane must have been drinking such a concoction much more regularly. Enough that it eventually killed her. In 2008, a team of researchers set out to exhume her body. When they finally found her, they also found a lock of her hair, kept for posterity in a nearby chateau. That hair contained 250 times more gold than you'd expect to find in a person, and some seriously high mercury levels. It would have damaged her kidneys, made her bones brittle, inflamed her intestines. In short, her beauty regimen was the death of her. She wasn't the first to be killed by her desire to look beautiful, and she certainly isn't going to be the last. And so we emerge back where we started, in season one, the Victorian era. A place where medical practice is typically a lot more likely to kill you than cure you, and where herbal medicine and prayer are often your best bet. Remember when we learned about mercury enemas and vapor baths as a treatment for syphilis? Arsenic, in particular, makes its way into Victorian life, as medicine and as other things. It can be found in rat poison, where you'd expect it, but also in food coloring, clothes, home decor, even baby carriages. Why? In large part because of the color green. In 1778, a Swedish chemist named Carl Scheele makes a fashion-changing discovery. He figures out how to use copper arsenite. Copper mixed with highly toxic arsenic, also called white arsenic, to create a fetching bright green color. Just a year before the color went into production, he wrote a letter to his friend musing that perhaps customers ought to be told about its potentially poisonous nature. And yet he didn't, or else his voice wasn't heard. By the 1800s this relatively inexpensive and luminous color is proceeding to become all the rage. Shield's green is only one version. There's also emerald green, Paris green and Schweinfurt green. No matter which you favor, it finds its way into art, ball gowns, wallpaper, curtains, even confectionery. It's just so bright, so vibrant it almost glows under gas lamps, which makes it the perfect thing to stand out in any gaslit parlor. Little do they know that the thing that makes it so vibrant is going to wreak all sorts of horrifying havoc. Though it is known to contain arsenic, most people think it harmless. Such a low concentration, and when used in such a way, of course it can't hurt consumers. But as early as 1839, a well-known German chemist named Leopold Gmelin wrote that damp rooms with green wallpaper often had a mouse-like odor, the product, he warned, of the production of dimethyl arsenic acid within it. He tells a newspaper all about his concerns, but it doesn't seem to make that big a dent. In 1857, every time an English doctor named William Hines retires to his study in the evening, he feels the overwhelming urge to throw up and suffers from terrible cramps. He's growing quite desperate when he finally realizes that the symptoms only ever come on when he's in the one room, so he scrapes samples of his fetching green wallpaper. Once he determines they have arsenic in them and he gets them removed, his symptoms vanish. He wrote later that a great deal of slow poisoning is going on in Great Britain. A handful of years later, in 1862, four children in London's working-class Limehouse District suffer from a strange illness, sore throats, breathing issues and they fall one after the other like dominoes. Though it is written off as diphtheria at first, Dr. Thomas Orton is perplexed as to why, in a tightly packed neighborhood, only these children in this house and not others suffered, and why they didn't respond to the diphtheria treatments administered. Not knowing what else to do, he catalogs the family's living conditions, the condition of their house and everything in it. The green wallpaper gives him pause because he's heard rumors that it might be poisonous, and so he starts connecting the toxic dots. He gets renowned chemist Henry Lethby to test the children's skin, only to discover arsenic poisoning was the cause of death. He also finds that the paper contains three grains per square foot of arsenic. In an adult, all it takes is four or five to prove lethal. You didn't even have to be in the same room, he said. I have known two children die from arsenical poison imbibed while playing for a few hours daily in their father's library. And yet many refused to take the threat seriously. As we learned in a previous bonus episode from this time last year, Murderous Mysteries, a woman named Lydia Sherman became quite famous in 1870s America for poisoning several husbands and children with arsenic. In 1867 in an Illinois hotel, 20 people ate biscuits mistakenly made with arsenic powder instead of flour and got violently ill with stomach cramps, sore throats, and convulsions. Everybody knows it's poisonous, but not everyone thinks that arsenic-infused fashion can be deadly. Children are particularly susceptible, but that doesn't mean grown men and women are immune. Victorians eat vegetables sprayed with arsenic insecticides. Lickable stamps are colored with arsenical dyes. And the siren song of that beautiful green means that people are wrapping themselves in clothes made entirely out of it. Cravats, fake flower wreaths, whole dresses. In 1871, a woman is fairly upset to take off her fetching green gloves and find her hands covered in blisters. The paint rubbed off by her sweaty palms. Some simply think the doctors are wrong, the reports of killer fashion sensationalized. Even doctors doubt such findings, as plenty of people have green wallpapers in their homes, and no one in their family seems to get sick. This is probably because while children are particularly susceptible to lower levels of arsenic, adults can typically handle such exposure with little problem. Later studies will also show that those who eat a lot of protein are better able to cope. William Morris is the most famous wallpaper artist of the 19th century, a British textile designer, novelist, translator, and leading light in the British arts and crafts movement. He also owns shares in his dad's mining company, Devon Great Consoles, the largest arsenic-producing business in the country. He doesn't believe the stories about arsenic and home decor being deadly. After all, he has it on his walls, and it's not as if anyone's going to be licking them. Even in 1885, long after public pressure forces him to stop using it, he writes to a friend, "'As to the arsenic scare, "'a greater folly it is hardly possible to image.'" The doctors were bitten as people were bitten by the witch fever. My belief about it all is that doctors find their patients ailing, don't know what's the matter with them, and in despair put it down to the wallpapers, when they probably ought to put it down to the water closet, which I believe to be the source of all illness. But Queen Victoria knows, or at least suspects. In 1879, she gets very angry at a visiting dignitary who fails to show up to see her on time. When he finally gets there, he apologizes profusely, saying that he couldn't help it. Buckingham Palace's green wallpaper has made him quite sick. She immediately has it stripped, which causes others in England to do it too. The thing that William Morris and others fail to understand is that it isn't just on the walls, it's in the air. Years before, in the 1850s, British political activist Harriet Martineau writes about green dust falling from such walls, calling them, "...prettily hung, not long ago, with a paper where a bright green trail of foliage was the most conspicuous part of the pattern. Day after day, everything in the room was found covered with green dust." And guess what? It's this very green that some have suggested may have killed Napoleon Bonaparte. After his final defeat, Napoleon was sent into exile on the island of St. Helena in 1815. Lucky for him, he lived in relative luxury, hanging out in a room painted in his favorite color, green. He later died of what we think was stomach cancer or maybe ulcers. Analysis of his hair samples, however, show a whole lot of arsenic. Was it the tiny flakes from such prettily hung wallpapers that got him? Plenty of contemporaries report on such dust, but say that it isn't always harmful. It isn't until 1891 that doctors realized that the pigment could be volatilized by fungi, releasing an arsenic gas. Perhaps those who don't get sick are lucky with the temperature and dampness levels in their homes, but not Napoleon. Death by design. What a way to go. But it's the girls who work with a substance who have it the worst. In workshops where artificial flowers are made, fake leaves are often dusted with a green arsenic powder. These girls, never knowing that its contact with their skin and lungs, is poisoning them at work every day. In 1861, a 19-year-old artificial flower maker named Matilda Schurer dies of accidental poisoning in London. In the last throes of her illness, she was throwing up green water. Even her fingernails in the whites of her eyes had turned an emerald green. She dies in pain and foaming at the mouth. After that, organizations like the Ladies' Sanitary Association get involved, noting that more and more girls are refusing to work with the stuff, and others who feel compelled to continue end up with horrible sores on their faces and with sore, bandaged hands. This organization gets an expert to come in and run a test on the average flower wreath headdress. In a London Times article called The Dance of Death, he concluded that it contained enough arsenic to poison some 20 people. A ball gown made from 20 yards of such green-dyed fabric contained 900 grams of arsenic, flaking off on the woman wearing it and anyone who brushes by. A grain is equivalent to 64.8 milligrams, or one seven thousandth of a pound. And only four or five are needed to prove lethal. Instead of getting upset at manufacturers, though, a writer at the British Medical Journal says this of women who wear it. Well, may the fascinating wearer of it be called a killing creature. She actually carries in her skirts poison enough to slay the whole of the admirers she may meet with in half a dozen ballrooms. But those same women are the ones who blow the whole thing wide open by bringing in chemists to save the girls who work with it, both victims and their own saviors, too. Although we're focused on poison here, I feel we have to admit that it isn't just green dresses that Victorian women have to worry about. For all the talk about the dangers of their hoop skirts, and let's be honest, they do come with some safety concerns. The materials of all their dresses are extremely flammable, and they live in a world that is lit by open flames. Dancers are particularly imperiled by flammable garments. The gauzier the costume, the more likely it is to burn quickly, and so many dancers died by fire on stage. Our cage crinolines certainly aren't helping. They hold dress material far out from our bodies, making them a much easier target. In 1861, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's wife sits down to play with her kids, and her dress is lit by a stray match or lit paper. In 1865, two New Yorkers get too close to a hot stove. In 1867, Archduchess Mathilde of Austria tries to hide her cigarette from her father by putting it behind her back. In 1871, Oscar Wilde's half-sisters Mary and Emily are dancing at a Halloween party when one's dress catches fire, the other hurrying to help her. These women burned to death in their clothing, all of them in front of their loved ones. In 1860, a British medical journal called The Lancet estimates that 3,000 women died by fire. In that year alone, it's a pretty horrifying prospect. But sometimes it's our desire to get ahead that hurts us. For women who work in factories post-industrial revolution, this is especially true. Sometimes it is the work conditions that kill them. But sometimes the product itself is a poison, a silent killer in the guise of glamour, working its way into their bones. It's the 19-teens, and with World War I declared, North American women are lining up to go to work painting watches with luminescent paint, which makes them glow in iridescent green. I am not loving the developing connection between my favorite color and poisoning. These working gals become known as ghost girls because of the way their day job leaves them glowing. They make the most of it by wearing their good dresses to work so that later, in the dance hall, they'll shimmer. It is considered a good and coveted job, one that pays some three times more than other factory positions and has a much cooler vibe. Women join up in droves, then tell their sisters and friends to come along with them. It isn't easy work. The watch dials are small, making them a very tiny target for painting. For best accuracy, the girls are all taught to lip point. That is, stick the brushes in their mouths to get them to a fine point, dip them in the paint, coat the dial, and then do it all again. Never mind that the luminescent paint they're using gets its signature glow from radium. It's harmless, their superiors say, and the girls trust them. Little do they know that radium is building up in their bodies, leaching right into their bones. Just like back with arsenic paint, people know that radium is dangerous. As early as 1900, a French physicist named Antoine Becquerel carried a small vial of it around in his waistcoat pocket for just six hours and reported that his skin bloomed with ulcers. But used in small quantities, most experts say it's just fine. In fact, it's good for you. You can buy radium water as a tonic. The recommended dose is five to seven glasses, daily. It's in cosmetics, jockstraps and lingerie, butter, milk even toothpaste. And so the dial painters go on merrily dipping it into their mouths hundreds of times every day. But then they start getting sick. The first comes in 1922. A girl named Molly Maggia has to quit her job because she feels so sick and nobody can figure out what's wrong with her. Her aching tooth just won't quit, so her dentist pulls it out. But then another starts to ache, and then another, filling every time they're pulled with bleeding ulcers and pus. At one point, her dentist prods her jaw, and it breaks against his fingers. All he has to do is reach into her mouth and lift the whole thing out. Her limbs ache as well. At a certain point, she can't even walk anymore. In just eight months, Molly is dead, and no one can say what happened. The radium gives them horrible cancers and bores holes inside them. It literally eats them alive, killing dozens over several years. And for a long time, the companies hush it up. When the girls start to complain more and more loudly, the company doctors diagnose the issue. These girls are suffering from syphilis. Think about that for a minute. Being a young girl in the 1920s, sick and in pain, being publicly accused of having a nasty STD. Of course it's your fault, you brazen hussies. And some people believe it, but the girls and their families know better. And still, the companies continue on with their practices. The men in the factory wear lead aprons when they work with radium, but they don't offer any such protection to the girls. They refuse to admit that they are poisoning their workers and that there's any need for protection at all. This is a heart-wrenching saga, and I could go on about the girls it affects. But let's skip to the small and impactful silver lining. Seeing that something needs to be done, many of the afflicted women band together to fight back and make the companies listen. They want to be recognized and have their medical bills paid. But more than anything, they want to save other girls. It is not for myself I care, dial painter Grace Fryer said. I am thinking more of the hundreds of girls to whom this may serve as an example. They fight to find a lawyer, though so many turn them down, either disbelieving their claims or just afraid to take on the big bad corporate. Some women are so determined that they give testimonies, even from their deathbeds. And eventually, they do triumph. They make the companies admit their part and prove that it's the radium that killed them. Some of the girls are compensated, while others aren't. And, of course, so many of them die along the way. Those that live often do so in pain, both emotional and physical. But the Radium Girls are some of the first workers to make a company responsible for the health of their employees. Their fight leads to life-saving regulations in the workplace and the establishment of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. They fought in ways the artificial flower makers who came before them couldn't. And though some lost their lives, they left us with a powerful legacy. When I started writing this episode, I wanted to talk about how women have wielded poison, both for good and for evil. But what I kept coming back to was how women are forever poisoning themselves, or being poisoned by the products they covet and are told they need to look and feel their best. And while these all feel like issues of the past, perhaps they're not. In 2009, an 81-year-old woman named Evelyn Rogoff went to make herself a cup of green tea and her chenille bathrobe touched the electric burner, resulting in her death by fire. In Quebec in 2012, a new bride wanted some trash-the-dress photos of her wading into a river, where the dress quickly became soaked in water, helping the current drag her down. But this isn't just isolated dangers we're talking about. Our makeup and other hair and skincare products are also potentially dangerous. In the USA, the cosmetics industry is barely regulated. You can put whatever chemicals in them you like. The EU has banned or restricted more than 1,300 chemicals in such products. But of the 40,000 chemicals on the U.S. market, we've done that for just 11 of them. We might be using formaldehyde in our hair straightening treatments and nail polish. Or parabens linked to reproductive issues in our skin and hair products. Coal tar dyes in our eyeshadow. I don't know about you, but I find that pretty haunting. thanks for listening. I've really just skimmed the surface here, so if you're interested in reading more about some of these stories, I've got some book recommendations for you. To learn more about poison in the Renaissance period and how modern forensics has helped us figure out what killed royals of the past, check out The Royal Art of Poison by Eleanor Herman. If you're interested in deadly fashions, go for Fashion Victims, The Dangers of Dress, Past and Present by Alison Matthews David. Or for a more specific deep dive, Bitten by Witch Fever, Wallpaper and Arsenic in the Victorian Home by Lucinda Hawksley. I haven't done anything like justice to the story of the Radium Girls, and it's a subject I hope to return to later. So I encourage you to pick up Kate Moore's excellent book, The Radium Girls, which is one of the best and most powerful non-fiction books I've picked up in the last few years. And there's a movie coming out about the Radium Girls, and from what I can tell, it's premiering today, April 3rd, 2020. So make sure to go and check that out. And if you want to learn more about navigating the turbulent waters of what cosmetics and beauty products are good and perhaps real bad for you, I'll give you some resources and websites in the show notes. Thank you so much for being a patron. You have no idea how much it helps keep this show on the road. You can also support the show and get yourself some lovely artwork while you're at it by purchasing a lady-centric map, timeline, art print, or greeting card over at my Etsy merchandise shop. For a transcript of this episode, a list of my research sources, lots of images, and more, check out my website at theexplorespodcast.com. Come find me on Instagram and Facebook at The Explores Podcast and Twitter at The Explores Pod.